welcome to the Milk Bottle e-commerce show, brought to you by Milk Bottle Labs, Ireland's top-rated and officially accredited Shopify and Clavio e-commerce experts. Founder Keith Matthews interviews e-commerce professionals, app developers and entrepreneurs to share as much digital knowledge and e-commerce tips and tricks as possible. This podcast is kindly supported by our go-to e-commerce tools. Rewind.io, the leading backup solution for Shopify, BigCommerce, Trello and more. Let's just say it's the cheapest insurance policy you'll ever get for your Shopify store and all your valuable data. Simply go to rewind.io forward slash milk bottle to get your first month for free our go-to shopify application to supercharge in-store pickup and local delivery on your shopify store is zapiet it's fully customizable and scalable from one location to thousands backed by outstanding customer support it's no wonder zapiet is trusted by over 10,000 plus stores across 150 countries now over to your host keith matthews Hey folks, welcome back. Today I am delighted to be chatting to Melbourne-based Gavin Ballard of GetSubmarine.com. Gavin has pivoted his original Shopify Plus agency, Disco Labs, into a product-based SaaS, which helps Shopify Plus merchants build tailored experiences on Shopify. Gavin has a long-established reputation within the Shopify developer community, and I've known Gavin since 2015, so this chat is is an absolute delight. In fact, I doubt Gavin even remembers meeting me in London in 2015, but we'll know in a moment. We discuss Gavin's history, we discuss the broader e-commerce landscape, and we also discuss headless commerce, flexible commerce, and a new flexible uh, term, which is known as composable commerce. Gavin, welcome. Thank you very much, Keith. I remember it vividly. How can you how, how can you forget your first meeting with uh, with yeah. Keith? You can't. Absolutely. We were, uh, myself and Peter Corkery, the other half of Milk Bottle, were in London that day. I do remember that I think I made everybody late. And we eventually arrived at the venue and Kerr has remained a, a mutual friend of ours ever since. So in case anybody wonders, Kerr Whitaker holds the record on this podcast, Gavin, because he's been on it three times. Ooh, OK. It's impressive. So, so it's impressive. But that's the respect I have from Kerr uh, for Kerr. So, uh, yeah, so he brought brought the two of us together. But it's an absolute delight. I will also uh, publicly acknowledge the fact that you're living in Melbourne and it's my favourite city because I was there for a few years. So how is Melbourne? It is... Maybe much the same as when yeah. you were here. It's it's a great place to be. Right now we're in the middle of winter, so um, perhaps a little glum. But uh, we've got we've got the AFL football to keep us entertained. We've got the World Cup here at the moment, so that's exciting. And we get to peek over to to the UK to watch the Ashes cricket. So um, that's uh, very typical for Melbourne. That was a very sport oriented response. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> you you left out the piece where the Australian where the Matildas beat uh, the Irish ladies soccer team a, f- a few days ago. And they're now, I think they're this week, they're playing in Perth um, against the Canadians who have an exceptionally strong team. So we won't go there. But uh, yes, the AFL, I lived beside, I lived quite close to the Carlton ground for a period of time. And uh, yeah, footy, footy day was always, a, there was always a bit of a buzz around the place, very similar to our own Gaelic football kind of a, kind of an atmosphere. But Gavin, look, uh, genuinely, really, really nice to talk to you. I mentioned in the intro there that you have a, a reputation and uh, you do have a, a reputation within the developer world. I've seen you talk several times. I've seen you talk at Unite. I've seen you talk in London. And you've grown, I suppose, what I'd like to get to is you've grown that knowledge now through the agency world and now through the product world. But where did it start? Where did you actually find Shopify? Because they, they, you found it in, like in the early days before 
before people were mixing it up with Spotify, I'd say. Yeah, OG, OG, I guess. Um, so, yeah, my background is software development. That's one of the things that I studied at uni. Um, and sort of out of that, I was working in a couple of startups, moved over to the States to start a business with some friends of mine. And when that didn't work out very well, I needed to um, needed to make money to, to eat. And so it just happened that uh, when I started freelancing, one of my very first clients who I still work with to this day, actually, was uh, a Shopify merchant and they just needed a custom backend app built. So I kind of got involved in that route and that was maybe 2013, 2012 or something like that. So very early in the in the Shopify world, it was very much like you could ask a question on the forums and Toby, the CEO, would jump in and answer questions on Liquid and fix bugs like live in real time when you were asking questions. So a little bit of a different uh, beast to what it is today, but just really loved. I mean, the, the big thing that I say to anyone is um, the reason I've stuck around for so long is the ecosystem. It's, um, it's consistently just been a very supportive group of people that I've met through the ecosystem, friends I've made. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a really great environment ecosystem. And while it's changed a lot over the years, I think that's still true. And I still think that that is one of Shopify's biggest competitive advantages to any ecosystem. And I think that's, I think that's valuable no matter if you're like targeting the sort of small, medium businesses that they start out with, or if you're trying to tackle enterprise as you are today, like that ecosystem is still essential because yeah, no one build stuff on their own yeah and we were talking about that before we pressed record as well ecosystem the ecosystem has been core to its success and i i think that's probably what a lot of other soft software companies don't get i think they think that maybe that if you set up a partner program well then that builds the ecosystem but in actual fact uh, shopify have done it very very uniquely i always had the impression gavin that you were always into the complex uh, the difficult trying to find a solution for a problem that shopify didn't already have and I know that exact, that's exactly what you're doing now. But at any stage, did you just build stores and just do the, the, just do the kind of do the ordinary in order to understand the platform? Or did you just go as a developer and just go straight into the code? I'm personally interested in how you, how you started. Yeah, it was, I mean, starting out early, like early doors, the very first project, like I mentioned, was some custom app stuff. So I guess that was kind of focused on backend and it was kind of like custom order management systems. So actually probably relatively complex, but that kind of meant I got to know Shopify themes and Liquid and um, I'd done a fair bit of front end development anyway. So pretty shortly after I transitioned to like full-time freelancing in the Shopify space, I was doing anything. Um, so store set up custom themes, um, product migrations, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I sort of touched every part of the the platform as it was at that stage. And there, there used to be a time where I felt like I had the whole thing in my head. Um, these days, it's it's almost impossible to be doing that. So I think that there are lots of corners of Shopify that I'm like, oh, I sort of vaguely know what yeah. that is, but I don't have the same depth of knowledge across the whole platform that I may have, you know, five years ago. But um yeah, it was very much um, anything like setting up a tea towel store for someone who had it as a side hustle, like that kind of stuff. Um, over time, I think because my interest was in software development and the back end side of things, that just naturally drove me to to focus on larger merchants because they're typically the ones that see the ROI from that kind of build. They have the need for it and they can't just be satisfied with something that's off the shelf. So I think 
like as a natural consequence of what I was interested in, it kind of moved up the chain to, to larger and um, I guess what I, these days I'd call larger mid-market and enterprise um, merchants. But that was also helped a lot, I think, by the fact of, of being here in APAC and um, there being quite a strong uh, Shopify community in APAC here early early doors and um, building some relationships with some uh, folks at Shopify who were working with larger merchants and were able to like um, say, hey, you, you should work with these folks um, because we have seen what you've done and we like it. So definitely some good opportunities early on to work with larger merchants, which kind of accelerated that development, I guess. Yeah, your location is interesting because you know, Australia has a population, I suppose, of around 20 million. 25, they say. 25. Yeah. Oh, it's, <laughs> wow, it's gone up significantly since I was there. So you've a, you've, a, you've a great population, but also from my memory of Australia, you know, Australians in general are early adopters of technology, aren't they? So did, would it be right to say that the demographic would be similar to Canada? In other words, Shopify was born out of Canada, but the, there's a, there is definitely similarities there. Would that be right, Gavin? Definitely, like in terms of size of market and size of country, and some of the um, the logistical challenges that get implied with that. Um, and yeah, so Australia is kind of interesting in like a um, technology and e-commerce perspective because it does it does tend to be waves. Uh, so, for example, we were one of the first countries to have very widespread usage of tap and go in um, like I don't know what they call it in Ireland to be honest, Con- but contact um, yeah. Contactless payment. There we go. Um, It says so ubiquitous now. Very, very early adopters in that front. Um, But then we also have so many retailers here who are on these legacy ERP systems from 30 years ago. So yeah, it definitely goes definitely goes in waves, and that's both interesting and frustrating and and challenging at different times. Um, But overall, I'd say yeah, Australians are pretty technology forward. A banking system is generally pretty good. The payments landscape is mixed and varied and interesting. Um, yeah, what I touched on most recently, big difference to us in the US and, and maybe the sort of the UK island is due to the sparse population and the size of the country. Logistics and fulfillment is an absolute nightmare. Um, and, and so dealing with shipping and logistics challenges is, is one of the things that a lot of the retailers here um, face. But, um, you know, if you focus on the East Coast where 80% of the people live, then you, then you're you, okay. know, you solve a few of those issues. But um, the rest of the country, uh, maybe a, a little more, more of a struggle. So before we get to Submarine then, so Disco Labs was the agency that you were running, which was the, I suppose you went from freelancer then and you, you uh, learned the Shopify platform. So how long were you running Disco Labs for? Um, I mean, it, it is still operational. Um, it's maybe more in name only these days, but... Probably about eight years from from inception. So I was freelancing, just organically got more work than I could handle. And the thing that everyone does when that happens is like, oh, I guess I start an agency now. <laughs> and so that builds up very, very organically over over eight years. And um, we always stayed quite small and focused and, and boutique, I guess. Like we were always very much focused on building custom apps and integrations for merchants. We never sort of strayed outside into um, full service agency agency territory so no front-end design no development no marketing um not really product management or photography or anything like that it was just very very focused on complex back-end logic and builds and i think that was actually a really 
good decision because because we were so niche and focused, we we got really, really good at doing that kind of stuff, um, which has led into the actual product opportunities that we've got now. But also it meant that we were a very appealing partner agency for other other businesses or other agencies that didn't have that depth of knowledge. They needed someone on a project to, to win a deal or to get a customer migrated, but we weren't threatening in the sense that they could bring us on a pro- in on a project. We could focus on this specific thing and deliver that. And um, yeah, as a result, we had really strong, or still have, I would say, really strong partnerships with a lot of agencies globally. And it's one of the ways we've been able to work with you know, some of the biggest brands on, on Shopify, whether it's you know Stamps or Hasbro or JB Hi-Fi. Um, so yeah, we wouldn't have been able to do that just as the agency solo. It's it's again, I guess it's coming back to that ecosystem thing is is really important. Yeah. And I suppose for our listeners that maybe aren't aware of the kind of the, the Shopify agency model as a Shopify agency within the ecosystem, you can lean on other agencies. So if you're not a design agency, you can lean on a design agency or you can lean on the likes of um, Submarine to build complicated backend integrations and nobody threatens anybody. I'm sure it happens now and then, Gavin, but in general, you know, it always would maybe happen in business, but in general, uh, the beauty about the Shopify uh, ecosystem is that as a business owner, whether you're an app developer or an agency, you can use um, other agencies within the ecosystem to help you deliver uh, solutions for, for clients. So. And Gavin, that's exactly what you do. Mm. So what, if you were to summarize, like we, we'll get into more detail when it comes to, when it comes to the, I especially want to talk about pre-sales, by the way, because everybody's talking about subscriptions and everybody knows what that is. And uh, I'd like to talk about crowd, uh, the crowdfunding and also pre-sales. But just before we jump in there, what exactly is get, GetSubmarine.com? Yeah, so I guess to, to take one step back and when we were in that agency world and building these complex backend apps for merchants and partnering with agencies, one of the things that cropped up quite repeatedly for larger merchants, and when I say larger, I mean everyone's definition changes, but let's say anywhere from 15 to 20 million a year in revenue and up. Um, and you know, the largest clients we've ever worked with are like billion dollar online revenue turnover. Um, That's definitely enterprise end of the scale. But working with a lot of these merchants, a lot of the problems we were coming in to solve were around payment. Payment experiences is kind of the the wanky catch-all term we'll use for it. But um, anything where there was more than a one-time financial transaction with a customer. And and so the most obvious uh, one of those is is subscription, which everyone's very familiar with, but also things like pre-sales where you might be taking an order but charging for it later or charging for it incrementally later, um, crowdfunding where obviously you're taking pledges and then charging people later, um, but then also things like installments, like not not necessarily within an affirm or a Shopify pay installments kind of model, but like genuine or merchant-driven installments, tokenizing cards so you can pass it off to other sorts of systems, all that kind of stuff. And because we had a bit of experience building some of that with some early customers in Australia, probably most notably Foods, who was um, at one point the largest Shopify merchant in Australia, you know, nine-figure revenue and uh, meal delivery service who had really complex subscription requirements and we would sort of built something out for them. We kept getting these questions about how we could adapt that to do other other interesting things with, with payments in the Shopify space, which Shopify itself didn't necessarily support everything that merchants wanted to do, still doesn't. And, and so we saw that there was kind of an opportunity to start building our own internal tool set to make delivering these kinds of projects easier. And that was kind of the first iteration of Submarine was what I would describe an internal platform for us to really easily build these 
complex um, payment flows. And when, when I say complex, there's like a couple of dimensions to that. There could be things around the, the business model. So let's say take you foods as an example, who was a meal delivery subscription service. They, one of the reasons they hadn't been able to use anything off the shelf to date was because they needed to talk to their delivery and logistics system. They needed to talk to their delivery uh, zone management system, which knew what delivery days were available in different regions and all this sort of stuff. So all of this kind of information that needed to feed into their subscription system um, and just off the shelf stuff just didn't do that or make it easy. So it was really, hey, we have to go and build a custom app to, to make this work. Gavin, just hold on one second while we listen to our sponsors. Rewind.io is the leading data backup solution for your Shopify store. Did you know that there is no way of recovering lost data in Shopify? If your store is gaining traction, you may have multiple staff or third-party developers entering your store. Mistakes can happen and data can be easily deleted. Rewind.io puts you in control of your data, allowing you to restore anything accidentally lost from a single image to an entire store. It acts as a pretty cheap insurance policy for your Shopify account. At Milkbottle, we help clients reduce their business risk by installing Rewind in every single store before we make any changes. Get your first month for free by simply replying to your sign-up email. So Gavin, you've mentioned complex purchases, but you're also in an area of, you know, there's there's a, a time length for the authorization on the card. There's a lot of legislation around transferring data, a um, massive security element within the banking sector. Did that, did the direction of travel in the payments area for you, did that add further complexities and did your team have to become payments experts or how did you manage that kind of that side of 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 of, the, of your solution yeah we, we sort of didn't set out wanting to be payment experts or payment processes i guess and and to this day um i, I still say that we aren't necessarily aiming to be a a payment solution like we don't want to be a competitor with stripe we don't want to be a competitor with shopify payments the work we've done in the the payments and the actual capturing of information and that sort of stuff we've done that and we've done that with integrations to a lot of different payment processes. But the reason we've done that is purely because existing solutions didn't support the sorts of flows that merchants wanted to do. And and so what Submarine has evolved into is, um, and we've, we've taken what we did internally as an agency and turned that into a product that other agencies can use to build these experiences or merchants with in-house development teams can use to build these experiences. Um, so we're trying to unlock the power that we had internally and make that more broadly accessible and, and scalable for people. So, so the value that I see in Submarine is having all of the, the kind of biz, uh, building blocks around these experiences. So whether it is like the concept of a subscription or a subscription order or the concept of a pre-sale campaign and a pre-sale order and all of the sort of like boilerplate orchestration that you do around that. So whether it's um, you know, moving a pre-sale campaign through its launched and ended and collecting payment and fulfillment stages. All of that sort of stuff lives in our platform, but it all lives in our platform in a very accessible and flexible way so that you as a developer can pick and choose which bits you want, pick and choose how you want those bits to talk to each other. And when it comes to customizing it and saying, well, this specific merchant has a particular requirement around when they're capturing payment, you're able to implement that using our system in a way that isn't, I need to go out and build a custom app and isn't I need to do a bunch of hackery. It's I've got a really simple and straightforward way to implement that on the on the platform. And I think that that is that is a super 
powerful concept and it's, you know, why we built it and why I think it's resonating with the merchants and the agencies that we're working with today. Because, yeah, that that idea of, of flexibility just doesn't exist across enough of the eco, uh, the ecosystem at the moment. And, um, yeah, I think for too long, like, merchants have... Uh, even large merchants have been forced to sort of cram or shoehorn their business model into what particular tech vendors offer. And I really think it should be the other way around that, that a merchant comes to you saying, this is how I want my business model to work. Your technology needs to fit around that and, and adapt and support that. So that's kind of like the, at a high level, that's the, the big idea behind Submarine is to be able to be the platform that lets people do that kind of thing. So you mentioned subscriptions and then you spoke about pre-sales so can you give us an example of what you've done in that environment yeah so with with pre-sales i guess i kind of see there being kind of two types of business models that the merchants we're working with will use one is kind of the um the the launch type of pre-sale where a merchant is releasing a new product um they want to collect as much build as much hype ahead of a launch collect as many orders perhaps have a limited amount um and then release them and uh, in one big hit yeah like i say a lot of big hype generating some word of mouth um and then also just being able to see what the demand for the product is and being able to order the appropriate quantity when they go out and and get it shipped and so like a really good example of a merchant that we've done that with for a very long time actually so nearly five years now is is hasbro the um the toy company um so every time there's like a new star wars toy uh, sorry collectible i should say uh, <laughs> that gets released or gi joe or transformers um that's released as a pre-sale on the on the hasbro website and it's it's submarine behind the scenes that is orchestrating that and keeping track of quantity limits and then when the pre-sale is ready to to actually drop which could be you know three months four months down the track we're collecting payment and and getting it ready to fulfill so that's a really effective uh, business model for merchants who are releasing these new products we see a lot of people who are doing like collabs so like sneaker brands fashion brands board game companies uh where yeah they, they want that kind of like hey get your order in um get it locked away you don't have to pay until it's ready to ship out but but something where you have a lot of hype around it and then the the second model that we're seeing more and more people use and it's, it's something that's interesting that i don't think many merchants are doing but using pre-sales as kind of like a, a back order system as an alternative to a back in stock wait list so i'm sure a lot of merchants uh that that you'd work with or that other people have worked with in general would have a i run out of stock i put an email box on the product page saying put your email in and we'll let you know when it's back of course that's actually quite a poor customer experience and it relies on the customer then getting the email, seeing it, still being motivated enough to go and purchase the product. So um, what we're testing is uh, with a few merchants and what we've seen some success with is instead of that, just actually collect the order from the customer at the point in time where they have the highest intent to purchase, i.e. when they're landing on the product page for the first time, take the order, don't charge them. So they're not going to be like, well, I'm paying for something that I'm not going to get for two months. But yeah, just take the order then two days before it comes back in um, in stock, you can let them know, hey, we've got this back in stock. We'll charge your card in two days unless you cancel your order. You've got their card tokenized, uh, so you can just take the payment and ship it out. So, yeah. so Gavin, that's a big improvement in conversions. It's a completely different experience. It's, yeah, it's it's huge. So what we've seen, um, industry average with the merchants we've worked with, back in stock, wait lists, convert 
anywhere between eight to fifteen percent, and it varies a little bit depending on vertical and, and and that sort of thing. But once you have a customer that's placed a pre-order, they convert it to about eighty percent. So once you once you actually get the order in, um, only twenty percent of customers uh, cancel it before you actually collect the payment. So it's a huge difference. It's a huge huge uplift. Yeah. Um, and at the end, not only are you capturing that order at the time of intent, you give the customer the option um, of purchasing other things in their cart. You've actually collected that customer's details, so their shipping address and yeah. more than just an email address. So you have a lot yeah. more information about them. Um, there are innumerable benefits to, to doing doing it that way. So, so um, I think we'll see a lot more merchants actually using that going down the down the line. And um, I guess I'm excited that that's kind of one of the first. Um, products in the submarine platform that we productize and have rolled out and are uh, making available to merchants. So you're authorizing the card, but and then giving the customer the option as to whether they want to charge the card or not. Yeah, so it's um, it's actually not an authorization. So you're not holding the funds on the card, and and it works um, in the Shopify context. It works with um, Shopify payment credit cards, but also PayPal okay. Express. So it's actually just tokenizing it. So you're not holding the funds, okay, and yeah. you can then charge them, you know, months later if you need to. Yeah. Um, common sense and probably customer experience dictates that before you actually go ahead and charge them, you just give them a reminder to make sure that they're still um, keen for the product. But but it's not a, hey, you need to action this. It's like a, hey, by the way, if you do nothing, we're going to you know send you this thing that you asked for. Um, and of course, like in terms of how that flow works, it's up to the merchant and how yeah. they want to do that um, and, and what the timing on that looks like. But um, and then, yeah, no, we've, we've found it really effective. And then Gavin, just before we jump off that, that that's great stuff. Um, we, and we'll put links to in the show notes to information on the, on, the, on that to ask a kind of an obvious question, then you can integrate into Clavio. Then and can Clavio drive that customer experience? That is actually like basically what we what we aim for. Because at the end of the day, merchants have lots of different apps, and um, so many of them sort of take over the responsibility of emailing or communicating with customers, and that just doesn't make it's a very fragmented approach, and it really destroys the brand experience. So our perspective and every merchant we've ever worked with has always like wanted one central place to manage their customer comms. And so a lot of the time that is Clavio. Um, uh, so our principle has always been, look, we have some out of the box email templates, but really we expect you to use those for testing and making sure that everything's working. And realistically, you're going to be plugging our system into your your primary um, provider. So yeah, uh, for example, Clavio, we have, we're a tech partner with Clavio. You can integrate directly with them. And so when you have that upcoming campaign order about to close notification, that's an event in our system, pushes into Clavio. Clavio then not only knows that customer uh, has got that pre-order placed and therefore they know that about that customer, but they can also drive that comms, uh, yeah. the comms to them, whether that's email or SMS, or if yeah. the customer's elected a preference that's stored in Clavio, like that it'll, it'll flow through there. So again, I think that's, that's just an, uh, another iteration of the, the flexible commerce piece, right? Is, yeah. is being able to plug into the existing systems that merchants have. Yeah. No, you've described it very well. It enables merchants to set up a whole different set, a customer base and a flow base based on that, whether they cancelled or whether they took the order. So that's just, that's fantastic. What you've just described, Gavin, is flexible commerce. Is that right? Yeah, well, like a, a, an element of it, I think. I, so, I mean, I think you mentioned up top, we were, we're going to dive into the world of, of headless and composable and all of the buzzwords that are rushing around the ecosystem at the moment. Um, I think... I think headless specifically, composable commerce also to an extent, they're all about the idea of, you know, being able to pick 
best-in-class tools and, and maybe best-in-class for your specific business at that specific time um, and being able to, to stitch them together and making them play nicely together. Um, and I think that is really valuable and important. Um, I think both headless and, and composable are very tech-focused terms. Like they're really focused on are you API first? How much of that API is open? What does your infrastructure look like? Like it, it, it's very focused on the actual core tech. And so I think that's a very important part. Like at the end of the day, if you don't have the tech in e-commerce that supports that kind of composability and switching things in in and out, you you end up with a very rigid structure. But I think flexible commerce is, is more than just that tech part. Like yes, that tech part and the composability is really important, but it's also like how quickly that stack and your business can respond to change. So, you know, can you deploy um, your current e-commerce experience into a new region in a matter of weeks rather than a matter of months? Um, like not only from a technical perspective, but also from a business and logistics perspective and like a, a risk appetite perspective. Things like being, yeah, global first. So understanding that, you know, um, especially for merchants outside the US, the, um, the e-commerce market is is huge and it is global. And increasingly, if you're not able to sell cross-border, you're going to be very hampered as a merchant. So being able to do that is is another part of uh, the flexibility. And then, yeah, I think openness is is another really important part. So making sure that anything your tools or platforms you're working with um, can do, you have access to that um, and so not walling off different parts of your products to different partners or or, or or different types of merchants and things like that. So yeah, I guess they're kind of some of the high level um, ideas that I have behind what flexible commerce yeah. is. Well, Gavin, you mentioned also composable commerce, which is a, a mm-hmm. buzzword that's around Shopify. What is composable mm-hmm. commerce? Yeah, so I, I think it's kind of like, I think headless is, so the headless commerce is one facet of it, which is, I guess, focused on, hey, you should be able to have a front end to your website that you can stitch on to any sort of back end or any sort of collection of back ends. I think composable commerce is just sort of taking that idea and extending it to the entire tech stack. So the idea that you should have, you should be able to pick the best email marketing tool, um, which is, of course, is Clavio because they're sponsors of the podcast. Um, <laughs> they were. <laughs> yeah, oh, they were. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe maybe I should mention some competitors then. Um, <laughs> good. No, but yeah, you should be able to pick you know, the yeah, best e- you. email marketing software for you, yeah. the best order management system, the best subscription system, and, and have a way to, to have them talk to each other in a yeah. way that means that you can swap those components out. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the idea behind that is as you grow, you can – yeah, chop and change those um, those components out. And I guess there's also another benefit in my head, at least for merchants, which is that if those components are genuinely composable and swappable, then, um, you know, the, the competition amongst different providers is more intense and the overall cost of ownership drops for a merchant. So I think that's an important consideration as well. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the composable landscape. I think one thing that has kind of been lost with, the discussion around composable and Shopify specifically is that a lot a lot of people have for a long time sort of tried to paint Shopify as the antithesis to composable and that it's a monolith and it's one big stack. And like, yes, you can get a lot of stuff out of Shopify itself. But I think what a lot of people miss is that no matter what approach you're using, you need to have some sort of glue in the middle to stitch everything together. And so whether that's like if you're using commerce tools, then that glue is commerce tools. Um, If you're using big commerce, then that glue is big commerce. And so it doesn't matter how much you say the words headless or composable, you need some common language, common framework to bring all those bits together. And I actually think Shopify is just that, you know, it's had an API forever. Um, 
for a very long time, it's been very rare for any single merchant to have just Shopify and not pull in these um, first-party or third-party um, components and tools. And so I actually think Shopify fits quite well into the composable narrative and it doesn't always get the the credit that it should should for that. But uh, and, and I think it's actually it's 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 actually a really good a good example of uh, of composability um, in terms of being able to swap in those those third-party apps in a yeah. relatively easy easy manner. I mean, could, um, and that's all. Like, oh, sorry, Keith. Oh, you're okay. So, Gavin, there could be even an argument to say that they they defined it because since day one, you could add an app, which on a very very low simple level is exactly what you just described. Obviously, headless is for the kind of top few percent, you know. But I think I think part of the reason Shopify doesn't get the credit for that is possibly because by some, it's still seen as the kind of mom and pop platform, which is obviously completely not the case since i mean it's changed dramatically in the last seven or eight years yeah i think i think like i think they've been slow to sort of uh, adopt and drive and own the conversation around composable so i think a lot of you know you look at what they're doing with commerce components in the the kind of enterprise space like i think that's a direct response to the mac alliance and commerce tools pushing this new composability narrative and so they're they're playing catch up a little bit but i think in terms of like actually walking the walk and having a platform that that has quite a high degree of composability i like you say i think they've done that for quite a long time and and it's just because they haven't had a particular sticker slapped on the box that, yes. that people have um, not always thought of them as a composable yeah. platform yeah. there's certainly like there are things about it which are more challenging and some things you can do in in e-commerce tools that are easier than than in a in a shopify world but yeah i i think i'd agree with you when you say they've been doing it for a long time yeah. i mean maybe you know going back one further around you look at like wordpress and its plugin system yes like that's that's pretty composable yeah it is it was yeah. just uh, a bit of a challenging um experience uh, <laughs> uh, challenging experience and also just like the architecture of that it, you know composability when you're running the platform is is really difficult and i think you know with with what shopify is doing with things like shopify functions now um that's kind of like the next evolution of, of a word wordpress plugins where it's like that custom code that's running in the platform that um but but done in a way that where it's sandboxed and performant which was always kind of one of the biggest challenges of um of wordpress stuff was that you know once you had a plugin that had access to everything which meant it could break everything so yeah that's um, the problem yeah it, it's interesting yeah. Gavin, I could talk to you about flexible and headless and pre-sales uh, for another hour, but we've come to the end. Thank you so, so much for your time. No worries. Uh, time flies. I looked up the clock. Oh, so, uh, yeah. okay. We're done. We'll put uh, links to everything that you've done in the past in the show notes. And thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thanks for listening. All of our episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. A special note of appreciation goes to our sponsors, Rewind.io, the leading backup solution for Shopify store owners. Get your first month of Rewind for free by simply responding to any welcome email once you sign up for your free trial on Rewind.io. If you're a Shopify user with an exciting story to tell, reach out to the team on podcast at milkbottlelabs.com. Until the next time, take care.